Welcome to the Vermont Conversation and this special election edition of the Vermont Conversation. Well, the 2020 election, the polls have closed and results are still coming in. According to vote totals listed by the Associated Press, former Vice President Joe Biden has broken the record for the most votes ever received by a U.S. presidential candidate. He has now received more votes than Barack Obama did in 2008. Biden currently leads Trump in the popular vote by two and a half million. And as mail-in ballots are being counted, the Rust Belt states are trending toward Biden, and he appears to be headed for an electoral vote victory. But there was no blue wave, and the whole election was a lot closer than anyone thought. And it's not over yet. Here in Vermont, a stunning uh, 40% win by Governor Phil Scott as he is re-elected to his third term in office. We're going to spend the hour looking at the national and local results with several experts. Uh, in the first half hour, we'll be talking with Stuart Stevens, a word about him in a moment. In the second half hour, we'll be joined by the team from Vermont Digger. That's Ann Galloway and Xander Landon, and we'll talk with them about Vermont results. So first, Stuart Stevens. For 25 years, uh, Stuart Stevens was the lead strategist and media consultant to top Republican politicians, helping to elect presidents, senators, congressmen, and governors. He was the top strategist for Republican presidential candidate Mitt Romney in 2012, and he worked on George W. Bush's two presidential campaigns. Stevens, who lives in Vermont, has a book out this year called It Was All a Lie, How the Republican Party Became Donald Trump. Uh, Stuart Stevens, welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. David, great to be with you, man. So you are a veteran of watching uh, the national uh, results maps on election night, having done so in multiple presidential campaigns. Tell me what you see. Where are we at right now on Wednesday afternoon? Uh, Biden's going to win. I mean, if you uh, worked for Bush in 2000 like I did, this is a cakewalk. I mean, it took us 29 days. Um, I just it's a it's a masked uh, question. So assuming that Biden holds Arizona, which I think he will, uh, assuming he holds Nevada. Um, which I think he will. Um, Wisconsin, the Board of Election Supervisor, or whatever the exact title is, has already said that Biden has won by 20,000 votes. Um, and he's going to win Michigan by close to 200,000 votes. So um, when you add Nebraska's second district, which he won, um, that gets you to uh, 270. Um, then the race is over. Then the question is, how much is the margin going to be? And that will go to Pennsylvania and Georgia. Um, I don't think he's going to make it in Georgia when I look at these numbers. I think he's going to come tantalizingly close. Um, there's a question whether or not the Senate race with Purdue will be thrown into a runoff. That is possible. He's at 50.8 now with 200,000 votes outstanding. If he drops below 50%, there's a runoff. Um, and then there's Pennsylvania. And I think when I look at this, I've worked a lot in Pennsylvania, worked for Tom Riz, the last Republican governor to be reelected. I think uh, Biden will win Pennsylvania. 
So at the end of the day, um, you're going to look at a situation where Biden is going to have won more votes than anybody else, as you said in the intro, any other candidate for president in the history of the country. And, you know, probably it'll be north of 300 electoral votes. That's not a bad night. So I've been uh, thinking throughout this, you know, as as Donald Trump takes to the podium in the middle of the night to say that he's won, you know, there's the results and there's the politics. And clearly, Donald Trump is hoping that he can win the political game. It seems reminiscent of 2000 in that he believes that if he seizes the narrative, if he changes the story, if he somehow makes people think that the election was stolen or fraudulent, um, that he can soldier on and, and tough this out. What do you think? Well, look, I mean, 2000 was a unique situation. There's 535 votes in Florida. People forget um, there were a ton of states in 2000 that were tied. I mean, I worked for George Bush. We lost New Mexico by 300 votes. Um, we lost Iowa by a little over a thousand votes. Um, there were something like seven states that were decided by a total of around 15,000 votes. It was a very close election. Um, there's no recount here and that a possibility in Wisconsin is a calling for a recount. But Governor Scott Walker, to his credit, um, tweeted, uh, with 20,000 votes, there's really no path to overturn that in the recount. There's been two recent recounts. One was in 16 for Trump. Um, he ended up going up 136 votes. The other was in a governor's race, and the governor ended up going up 100 votes. So there's 20,000 votes here. You're not going to overcome that in a recount. So Wisconsin's done. Um, if you roll into Pennsylvania and Trump's already at 270, uh, it changes the whole complexion of it, including the legal strategy, because you can't go to the Supreme Court and say that this outcome could determine the uh, outcome of the presidential race. Um, I, I thought it was an extraordinarily dark night. Uh, but earlier in the evening, uh, I was on uh, Lincoln Project uh, streaming television, and I predicted that Trump would go out, which I don't think was any brilliant insight. It's just who he is. He's a thug. He, Putin is his model. This is what Putin would do. Um, so I, I think the system holds. Um, you know, Democrats have not talked about their legal preparations as much as Republicans have for good reason. They don't want to seem as if, you know, they thought it was going to get so close that they'd have to win it through the court system or keep it from being stolen. But the Democrats have been tremendously prepared for this. And there's tremendous legal resources on the Democratic side. Um, so it's not like they're going to be called sweeping here. So I think, uh, you know, this is in some ways reminiscent of 2018, where the early part of the night looked bad, and then as it rolled in, it turned out to be a big night for Democrats. Um, I think it'll be a defeat for Trump. I don't think it's a repudiation of Trumpism. So let's talk about that for a moment. Uh, There was a lot of talk of a blue wave. There were polls that indicated this thing going much bigger for Biden. And, of course, we we don't know the final 
final, final numbers, and, and it may confirm some of the polling more than it does right now. But um, did you think it would be more of a repudiation of Trump than it is? Yeah, listen, I believe the polls. <laughs> um, I, I particularly uh, pay a lot of attention to the Wall Street Journal NBC poll because it's done with the Republican pollster, Bill McIntyre, from the Democrat pollster, Peter Hart, who I think are on each side of the aisle, the two best pollsters pretty much that we have. So their last numbers had this at 10 uh, points for Biden. And most tellingly to me, they had Trump winning 51% of the white vote. So, I, you know, I, I thought that was pretty much an accurate uh, outlay. Uh, maybe Trump wouldn't win by 10, uh, or Trump wouldn't lose by 10, but I thought he'd lose by at least 7 or 8. Um and that's not what's going to happen. Those numbers are off. Um, and there'll be a lot of uh, study and analytics as to why, but that is the case. Hmm. I want to get your take on a couple of tweets. Of course, Twitter has been, um, you know, alive and well. Uh, if uh, on one end from uh, blocking and and uh, tagging President Trump, if you go to President Trump's Twitter feed right now, uh, it is uh, difficult to read because so much of it is obscured by warning labels. Um, but uh, here's one from uh, Senate Judiciary Chair Lindsey Graham, who said after his victory last night, uh, quote, here's the message I got. People like what I'm doing, and I'm going to keep doing it. You know, South Carolina was a huge disappointment to me. Uh, I, uh, Jamie Harrison, donor. I wanted Jamie Harrison to win. Um, I, I thought probably uh, it was a lot easier to get Jamie Harrison to 49 than to get him to 50.1%. But it turned out not to be close. And, and that was a huge, uh, a huge disappointment in the evening. Um, I think Lindsey Graham is as despicable a politician as there is in America. So, um, you know, you got to call it like it is. It's a big disappointment. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andrew Yang, the former Democratic presidential uh, hopeful, tweeted. Uh, quote, Joe may win, but it feels like we lost something important tonight. I don't know what to do with something like that. I mean, you got a candidate getting more votes than anybody else in the history of the country. Um, you're winning big states. You came closer in Texas. Um, and look, that... that, that so why is it that they're saying we lost something? I don't know. I mean, it just seems kind of strange to me. Um, there's a kind of democratic inferiority complex out there. I wrote an article about this in the Bulwark. Look, it, it, there's two things I think are really interesting. I mean, I will be very, very interested to see what percent of the Hispanic vote did Trump get. And if Trump ends up getting north of 35%, that will be a real achievement for him. Um, now, in the Bush campaign in 2004, which I worked, you know, we got up to about 42%, and then it dropped to 27% for uh, McCain and stayed there for uh, Romney and for uh, Trump in the next two elections. Um, but ultimately, you know, the, the future of the country is that it's changing so rapidly. 
And any hope for the Republican Party is to do better with non-white votes. Um, so I'm going to be really interested to see what they did. But if you just look at Texas, Texas is getting harder and harder to win for Republicans. And once Texas goes, uh, if it goes uh, Democratic, that's it for Republicans. They can't win the Electoral College. Um, so it's, it's a fascinating um, little incremental change. Um, I, I don't see any of this, these changes playing to Republicans' uh, longer-term benefit. So I want to talk for a moment about the Lincoln Project and Republican voters against Trump. You've been a, a, a mainstay of the Lincoln Project. These are the anti-Trump Republicans, uh, though I don't know uh, if you still consider yourself a Republican, but uh, that at least used to describe you. So millions of dollars uh, were spent by the Lincoln Project and and other uh, anti-Trump Republicans, and it appears that Trump has expanded his margins, not perhaps in the electoral vote, but in the popular vote. Um, are you surprised by that? And what does that say well, about the efforts against him to woo Republicans away from him? Well, look, I think the, the key here is that when you see Trump gets X percent of Republicans, how much has the Republican Party shrunk? And the sort of process during the four years, the dynamic during the four years of, of Trump is um, the intensity that Trump had with Republicans was mainly supported by a shrinking Republican Party. Um, Biden is going to end up winning independence. Um, look, when a race is this close, I, I think causality is always difficult to point to. But I'm sure glad we did what we did. Um, you know, we're just a group of Republican consultants, and we had sort of three choices. Uh, be for Trump, that wasn't going to happen. Do nothing, which kind of sucked. Um, or use the skills that we had to fight Trump. So we chose to fight Trump. And, you know, I think you get in these fights not because you think they're easy to win. You get into them because you think they're worth fighting. Um so you look at you know, Trump lost, uh, won Wisconsin by 20,000 votes uh, four years ago. He's going to lose Wisconsin by 20,000 votes. So uh, you look at Michigan, uh, Trump is uh, going to end up losing now by probably 180, 200,000 votes. Um, these tiny margins, Nebraska second, this whole presidential could uh, turn on Nebraska second. Um so, you know, everything counts. And it, it's, it's, it's difficult to say what made the difference. That's always true in politics. Um, but I'm glad that we fought. And look, I, I would have hoped that this would be more of a repudiation of Trumpism. You know, it's another disappointment that I have in the Republican Party. But we're going to still keep fighting Trumpism and what it, it stands for. And I think we saw last night this really chilling uh, insight, you know, forecast of what Trumpism would be like. I mean, you had someone, the President of the United States, uh, going out and saying we should stop counting votes. I mean, it's extraordinary. Um, 
That's not the first so time we've seen you? Trump from the podium do something extraordinary. We've been watching well, extraordinary things for four years. And one of the things that we have to come away from the election uh, is that, you know, realizing is that a lot of people see that, a lot of people hear that, and they're okay with it. You know, one of my big conclusions out of this whole process is that leaders matter. So in our system, parties should form a circuit breaker function, and Republicans never pull the circuit breaker on Trump. So if Donald Trump is out there, even if he gets elected president of the United States and he's doing these crazy things and saying these things, um, the silence or the, the positive support affirmation by Republicans validates it. So the, the, the weight of this really falls on Republicans. Trump is Trump. He's never going to change. He has never changed. The question is, what would the Republicans accept? So somehow it's okay now in the Republican Party to support a man who says he didn't rape a woman because she wasn't his type. That's okay. Somehow it's okay to support someone um, who, who uh, puts as a deliberate policy separates children from parents and puts them in cages. That's okay. So what you see is a normalization of this by the Republican Party, and that's 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 where the weight should be. That's where the, the accountability should be, because it's only uh, in the acceptance of the Republican Party that this becomes. Uh, accessible by a larger group of people. What surprised you in the results so far? Um, well, lots of things. Um, if Trump did get, you know, 35% or so with the Hispanic vote, that would surprise me. Um, in Florida, he was losing senior citizens, um, which makes winning Florida for a Republican almost impossible. It appears that at the end of the day, he didn't lose senior citizens. Uh, he probably went down a little, but he still won them. That surprised me. It surprised me that when you overlay this at the areas where COVID is worse, at least preliminarily, it seems very difficult to see an impact that COVID uh, had on uh, votes, which I, I just been totally baffled by that. I don't pretend to understand that. Um, it's it's totally counterintuitive to me. I mean, if there's a pandemic in your community and the president is is has this you know, non-response, says it's not happening, why doesn't that affect your votes? Um, so lots of things surprise me about it. Hmm. Um, if you're just joining us, uh, we're talking with Stuart Stevens, a former Republican operative to presidential candidates, uh, Vermont resident, um, and you're listening to the Vermont Conversation. So, as you mentioned, this was not a repudiation of Trumpism. So, if, in fact, Biden wins, as it appears he mm-hmm. is winning, what do you think becomes of Trumpism, and, and how will it express itself? Well, Trumpism is what conservatism is now. And, I, and I, for the life of me, I, I couldn't tell you what a, a theory of government conservative theory of government in America is today to save my life. 
I mean, you say you can like Elizabeth Warren, you can hate Elizabeth Warren, but she has a theory of government that is coherent, logical. She can defend it. You can attack it. You can praise it. But there is a, a coherent, logical theory of government. There is no such thing on the, the center right. There's none. No one can tell you what conservatism is. So I, I think that this is a it's been replaced by this grievance policies um, of, of, of Trumpism. So, but so that's... so much of Trump's power has been his ability to punish those who are disloyal to him, and he has proved that. Uh, you know, running primarying Republicans who are not yep. sufficiently loyal. So, with you know, kind of the capo out of the way, the the guy who can hurt you out of the way. What power does he or does his movement have over, let's say, Senate Republicans? Well, it's a great question, but I think you have to say on March 1, Donald Trump is still going to be the head of the Republican Party. March 1, 2021. I think he is, right? I mean, who else is going to be head of the Republican Party? There is no anti-Trump movement inside the Republican Party. Uh, there's no market for it. So you look at Phil Scott. Charlie Baker in Massachusetts, Larry Hogan in Maryland. I mean, these are all wildly popular Republican governors in blue states. I work for all these guys. I love these guys. They're all fantastic public servants. Um, Yet they can't pick their own state party chairman. Which, I mean, (laughs) if you work in politics to understand this, I mean, the idea of a sitting popular governor who can't pick their own state party chairman is just, like, unimaginable. I mean, it would be like saying Bill Belichick has to call, like, you know, sports radio to get permission to send in a a player. (laughs) Um, And and it just shows how deeply Trumpism is in the party. Um, And and you look at the candidates that are going to run in 2024. I think they're all just, you know, I mean, I know they are. They're just going to be variations on Trump. From Nikki Haley to Josh Hawley. Um, You know, there's this one of the eager myths that Republicans have to, to uh, foster about this election is that Trump won working-class voters. Well, he didn't. He won white working-class, but uh, he, he lost voters uh, by substantial market if you, margin if you make under $100,000 a year. Um, the more money you made, the more likely you were to vote for Trump, which is not atypical for Republicans. Um, so... I, look, I, I still just have a long-term, very dark picture of the Republican Party. If you take uh, Americans who are 15 years old and under, the majority are non-white. So odds look really good they're going to turn 18 and still be non-white. <laughs> and uh, unless the Republican Party changes, um, that's a death sentence. Um now, if, in fact, Trump did better with not just Cuban uh, in Florida, but did considerably better with Hispanics, I think that would be significant and has to be looked at. And you have to see why. And is that something that is uh, uh, symptomatic? Is it just a fault that the Democratic Party didn't focus on them enough? But first, we have to see the data. It's always very confusing at this point. Um, and you look at Arizona, where he's going to win, Biden's going to win Arizona. I, I don't, he won Maricopa County. Uh, by 10,000 votes, 
uh, I mean, by 10 points, won Maricopa County. He had to do well with Hispanics to do that. So, so let's, anyway. you know, apropos of this uh, question about uh, where does Trumpism go from here, so that uh, is especially important as we talk about the Senate. So it looks like at this moment that the Democrats, uh, you know, the McConnell, the Republicans will maintain control of the Senate, although some of these races are not, um, you know, officially over, although I do see that just uh, in the last half hour, um, Sarah Gideon in Maine uh, conceded to Susan Collins. So McConnell has wielded extraordinary power. He's been extraordinarily effective uh, in in doing what he does, approving Supreme Court uh, nominees, uh, but a lot of that is that he has Trump's hand on his back and also that Republican senators are very loath to cross the president. So if they don't have to worry about crossing Trump, might some of your old friends, people whose campaigns you've helped with, Senate Republicans, be more willing to be independent? Listen, I, I, I don't have any... I don't have any more hopes to give about Republicans when it comes to them doing something out of principle or because it's good for the country. I just don't. Now, I'd love to be proven wrong. And look, I'm wrong all the time. I was wrong yesterday. I thought we'd have different results to a certain degree. Um, but I, I just don't know what you do. Once, once you, it's, you just sit there silently when a president says he didn't rape a woman because she wasn't his type and you don't say anything. I don't know where, where where to send somebody to lost and found to find your soul. I mean, I, I don't get it. Um, and uh, I just don't think there's any coming back from that. So to me, uh, these were Republicans who faced a moment that they had a choice. They could either stand and fight for sort of larger principles that the Republican Party had said it was for. Character counts, personal integrity. A personal responsibility, the deficit, strong on Russia, pro-legal immigration. All of these are sort of linchpins of the Republican Party. Now the Republican Party is completely against each of these, where the character doesn't count, the non-personal responsibility. We're against you know, immigration completely now. Um, in fact, the borders are closed. Uh, you can't even drive to Mexico. Um, or Canada. Or Canada, yes. Um the deficit exploded under the ordinary president in the history of the country. Um, and, you know, Putin uh, interfered in elections and, and Trump did nothing. The Republicans went along with it, except for Mitt Romney, who cast a vote to impeach. Um, and uh, Russians, according to our intelligence services, played a role uh, in this election. And it'll be interesting to see how much that is. So, I mean, once you're willing as a United States senator to wake up and know that there's Russian intelligence agents who are working on your side and you're okay with that, like, what's left for you? I mean, All right, I did a lot well, of stuff in, I, I, I did a lot of stuff in politics, but I never woke up thinking I was working with the Russians. Okay, well, Stuart Stevens, we're going to have to leave it there. I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you, David. Stuart Stevens is a former Republican operative. His latest book is It Was All a Lie, How the Republican Party Became Donald Trump. We're going to take a short break for the news and talk about the Vermont elections just after the break. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. We're continuing our discussion this hour about the election results of 2020. 
In Vermont, history was made. First, a stunning 40% win by Governor Phil Scott as he's re-elected to his third term is in office. And another historic victory, Molly Gray becomes just the fourth woman to hold the office of lieutenant governor. Vermonters voted overwhelmingly for Joe Biden, 66% to 30% for Donald Trump. That's a considerable expansion from 2016, when Hillary Clinton received 55% of the vote uh, to 30% for Donald Trump. So here to help us make sense of what what is going on in Vermont in the election, we're joined by Anne Galloway. She's the founder and editor of VT Digger. And Xander Landon is VT Digger's political reporter. Anne and Xander, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thanks for Good having me. Good to be with you. Well, you are both veteran watchers of elections and their outcomes, and I thought I would just start by asking uh, Anne, Tell me something that really stood out to you in the Vermont election results that says something perhaps a little bigger about what went on here in the 2020 election. Well, I think that uh, you pointed out in your introductory remarks that um, Governor Phil Scott won by uh, 40 points over David Zuckerman, and um, this uh, news came out uh shortly after uh, the governor announced that he himself had voted for Joe Biden. And um, he is a longtime Republican, and so casting uh, a vote for the um, Democratic uh, candidate for president was a very big deal for him. Uh, He said in his remarks, which we have on video at VT Digger, that he had never voted for um, a, a Democratic presidential candidate before, um, he actually announced that, and um, that's the kind of politician that Vermonters, I think, you know, have respect for, someone who can um, not necessarily always hew to party lines. And um, so I think that was a standout uh, moment, along with Molly Gray uh, becoming the fourth uh, female lieutenant governor um, in the state of Vermont. Um, she won by a fairly wide margin in what was considered to be a tight race, and, um, you know, she's only 36 years old, and this is a, a big leg up for a newcomer to politics. I want to ask you about uh, Governor Scott making that announcement uh, on Election Day or the eve of Election Day that he was voting for Biden. To me, that seemed to indicate that uh, he didn't feel politically able to make that announcement before him. I have to believe he decided that quite some time ago. Uh, but he didn't feel that it was, uh, I don't know, what do you make of his late announcement of that? Because you and your colleagues have been asking him for quite some time who he's voting for, and he wouldn't say. Uh, Anne. Oh, yeah, that's true. I mean, he hasn't been willing to say previous to this, um, but um, I do think that um, the fact that he actually did make the statement uh, is meaningful and um, you know he's been riding a line um, all along with uh, people in his party here in Vermont who support Trump and um, so he's been somewhat politically cautious uh, on that point for that reason I think and um, you know he also uh, hasn't in the past been afraid to buck up against the Trump administration on a number of issues including uh, COVID um, but he has been so much circumspect, um, I think, in part to um, uh, make sure that he 
isn't going too far off the reservation, if I had to guess. But, you know, he was um, supported in the past by the Republican Governors Association and uh, and this time around, too. And um, so he's he's riding a line with his own party. Xander Landon, let me put the same question to you about uh, something that interested you or surprised you in Vermont's election results today. Yeah, I think one of the biggest surprises, and it wasn't totally a surprise, was that the Democratic Speaker of the House, Mitzi Johnson, appears to have lost her seat. Um, And uh, I say it wasn't a surprise because completely because in the last few election cycles, she's come within a very thin margin of, of losing uh, her re-election bids. She's been in the, uh, the uh, state house for 18 years, and uh, Michael Morgan and Leland Morgan, they're both Republicans, and Leland Morgan is an incumbent, won uh, last night. And uh, Michael Morgan, uh, who is uh, the nephew of Leland Morgan, it was up by 18 votes, uh, a very small number. Um, and right now, uh, Mitzi Johnson just told me uh, about an hour ago that she plans on filing for a recount with the local court in Grand Isle, which is where her district is. Um, she's not you know, necessarily expecting this is going to flip things and that things are going to go her way. Uh, she, she sort of acknowledged that the odds aren't uh, really in her favor here, although there have been incidents uh, or times on, on uh, in her district when recounts have flipped elections. But... This was definitely, you know, just uh, Republicans being able to uh, unseat the, 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 the Democratic leader of uh, the House of Representatives um, is a pretty big deal. And uh, the district itself is very purple. There are a lot of uh, Republicans living there, independents who lean towards the right, also a lot of Democrats as well. Um, and things have been close for years. And, and Michael Morgan ran in 2018 and he came within about, I think, 170 or so votes from, from unseating her then. So this was a successful, very successful effort by Republicans. And Republicans also picked up a few seats uh, across the state in the, in the House of Representatives, uh, sort of uh, gaining back ground that they um, had lost in 2018, just a little bit, although the majority is still very Democratic um, in, the, in the House and Senate. Uh, another notable political shift in uh, the Vermont election results is that the leader of the Progressive Party uh, was also defeated in his run. That's uh, Robin Chestnut Tangerman. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, that race and what happened there, Xander. Yeah, well, Chestnut Tangerman lost his seat as well, and I, I haven't spoken to him about this, but uh, I was speaking with, uh, yet, but I was speaking with you know, like I said, Mitzi Johnson about an hour ago, and she she was you know pointing out to me that um, that you know this year has been very hard for for incumbents uh, seeking reelection, and um, you know they they were in the state house or not the state house but the virtual uh, <laughs> state house working on uh, policies and passing the budget uh, until uh, the end of. Uh, I think September or beginning of October. And so, you know, usually that'd be time when, when candidates are out campaigning, going door to door, obviously, uh, even, you know, even, uh, now you can't do that because of the, the pandemic, but a lot of, uh, time was lost for those incumbents. And I think that that's likely what happened, uh, in, in Chestnut Tangerman's case, uh, as well. Um, 
and um, uh, Sally Aichi, I don't know how to pronounce her last name, Aichi or Aichi, in, um, in his district uh, was able to, to beat him out um, by, once again, a very small margin of something like 30 or 35 votes. Well, and on keeping with the theme of historic moves in the election, Vermont elected its first openly transgender lawmaker, Taylor Small, was elected to uh, the state, uh, is it Senate? Oh, no, State House from Winooski. Um, Xander, what can you tell us about Taylor Small? What is her background, her politics, and her party? Yeah, so uh, this this was also um, you know not uh, not much of a surprise. I think that after the primary election, um, you know the the forecasts, uh, the political observers, um, you know, had said that 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 she that she was going to win, um, and she did. Uh, this is now you know she is now the the first openly transgender state legislature that uh, state legislator that Vermont has ever elected. Uh, she is from Winooski, and she um, had both the progressive and the Democrat Democratic uh, nomination. Um, and she will be uh, elected with Hal Colston, who's the incumbent in Winooski. Mm-hmm. And uh, in her own press announcements, um, Taylor Small has noted she is only the fifth openly transgender member of a state legislature um, in the country. Um, I want to move on to the um, presidential results in Vermont. As I noted earlier, uh, Joe Biden won here with a margin of 66 to 30 percent for Trump uh, in 26, uh, building on considerably expanding the margins uh, from 2016 when Hillary Clinton won just 55 percent. I should say just. That is a substantial margin of victory. And I believe in 2016, Vermont had the largest margin of victory uh, for Hillary Clinton of any state in the country. Um, we are, we're not there yet, so I, I, in terms of state results around the country, so I don't know if that is still the case, uh, but it may well be, given that it is larger than the 2016 result. Um, Ann Galloway, what is your thought on the, the Trump base in Vermont? Uh, and I should say, in terms of raw numbers, Trump got 95,000 votes in 2016. He got 112,000 votes in this election. Of course, this was a his, the largest voter turnout, uh, I think, ever in Vermont. I think it handily smashed previous records. But what's your thought on the Trump base in Vermont, Ann? Uh, well, you know, I think that there are places around the state that are traditional Republican strongholds, including Rutland County in the Northeast Kingdom and Orange County. Um, and these are places where uh, Trump um, has been more successful. And uh, But I think people here are a little more sensitive to the issues surrounding covid um, and uh, they are people here are wearing masks for the most part and are uh, trying uh, to comply with state uh, mandates around um, social distancing and that sort of thing. And, and uh, some of the messages that have come out of the White House, I think, have um, been difficult for Vermonters, and that's um, helped to undermine his base here. Were you surprised, Anne, by the margin of victory uh, by Phil Scott? 
And also, you know, on the flip side of that, that David Zuckerman did not manage to break out of uh, the 20, you know, the 20 percent range, uh, winning just 27 percent of the vote. I was surprised by the margin. I mean, 40 percent is huge. I don't know if that's a record or not. It it sure sounds like it could be. Um, That did surprise me because David Zuckerman is a hardworking campaigner. Um, I do think he may have been hampered a bit, too, by the extended uh, legislative sessions. Um, He's highly organized, though, and he has a huge email list. Um, He knows how to use social media. Um, His messages around um, paid leave and minimum wage and uh, cannabis are... um, you know, resonate with a lot of Vermonters, and he's very progressive. Um, but he had a hard time even generating a large um, support in Chittenden County. So um, it, it, it did surprise me that uh, the governor's, the current governor's popularity is that immense. And I do think that it really does boil down to his um, willingness to um, face some difficult economic consequences associated with COVID. COVID. Um, you know, he's been uh, holding these press conferences two to three times a week. He's sort of omnipresent in that way, and that gave him an, a, a great advantage uh, going into this election. Now, the, the, the parlor talk in Vermont is this is only fuel for the conversation about what happens in 2022 when Senator Patrick Leahy's is up for re-election. A, a poll done by VPR and uh, Castleton University back in September showed Phil Scott edging out um, uh, Pat Leahy, if they were to run in a head-to-head, although I, I should note that on the Vermont conversation, Governor Howard Dean uh, really castigated that poll and the quality of the poll. Um, so there's that. I will I will insert that. Do you think that Phil Scott is either interested or would be able to carry over his in-state popularity to a run for federal office? I have no idea if he's interested. Um, I think he is immensely popular at the moment um, and very well could um, be supported by Vermonters uh, in a role of that sort should he decide that good or, you know to go that direction. Um, right now he's really riding high on a wave of popularity that is that is rare anywhere um, and uh, even in Vermont so, I would say anything is possible, but that's two years from now, and um, who knows what will what will be next and how things will play out. But yes, I mean uh, the departure of Senator Patrick Leahy is going to leave a huge hole. And uh, well, now we should point out there's there, there's no <laughs> announcement been made about a departure. That's he right. has not said he's not running. Right, but it seems uh, quite likely that he might not. And uh, there has been a lot of parlor talk, as you mentioned, and. Um, there's also been a lot of um, anxiousness around um, the kind of person who might run, and a lot of people would like to see a woman uh, run for that uh, for that seat, or a House seat should um, Peter Welch run for this, the Senate. So I don't know. It'll be really interesting. Every time uh, there's an open seat in those top slots, so much energy is generated, and um, so... It, 
there are a lot of people who would like to like to run uh, for House or for Senate, I think. Right. Um, Xander Landon, uh, let me go back to you and some of the in-state results that we have here. So, as you noted, uh, the GOP in Vermont picked up three seats in the House. Uh, do you see, and, and some of their, you know, some of the bellwether races, one was Representative Heidi Sherman in Stowe, who faced a strong challenge that she seems to have handily uh, fended off uh, in, in winning re-election. Uh, do you see the possibility that the GOP might have something of a revival, uh, riding the coattails of the top of the ticket with Phil Scott? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question, and I think that the, the biggest challenge for them right now is that they're still far behind the numbers that they that they once were in Vermont. I mean, even pre 2018's election, they had you know six more or seven more representatives in the House than they did now. And those numbers that they had at the time allowed them to basically unilaterally have uh, have the power to <clears throat> support the governor's veto pen, which is something that they lost in some instances uh, in the last biennium, uh, this, this, this last two years, uh, where you uh, saw the Democrats who, with a coalition of left-leaning independents and progressives uh, were able to, uh, on two occasions at least, come together and override the governor's veto pen. Uh, that's how uh, a minimum wage increase and the Global Warming Solutions Act, which is a carbon uh, emissions reduction uh, piece of legislation uh, that's pretty controversial, was passed uh, this year. Um, so right now it looks like they're one, one vote <clears throat> shy of that 100 number that they need to be able to come together and easily uh, override the governor's pen. Um, the question about uh, if, is there, if there's a revival, um, I think that in the time of uh, Donald Trump, it's going to be pretty hard. Um, obviously, you have examples where Republicans are uh, doing very well, such as in you know Heidi Sherman's race, where she was able to uh, fend off a challenge from a Democrat who was hoping to, you know, sort of ride on the coattails of uh, a quote-unquote blue wave um, in a year when Democrats are turning out to sort of vote against Donald Trump. Uh, you know, you have a lot of Republicans who continue to be successful like her and Phil Scott, uh, but I think that in general um, it, it's definitely going to be a hard time for Republicans in the state. Um, there's a lot of division within the state party and uh, between the party officials that lead Vermont's GOP and the actual elected officials on the ground. Obviously, there are a lot of uh, Republicans in Vermont who support the president, but there are also a lot who don't. And if they did publicly or if, um, you know, spoke in favor of Trump, it would sort of totally uh, tank their uh, reelection efforts. So they, Republicans in Vermont right now kind of have to walk a very tight line in a lot of districts. And it's going to be pretty hard for them to make a legislative comeback right now. Yes, and I should point out when I talk about a a comeback, I mean we are still talking about the the new composition of the uh, state house is a two to one advantage. Democrats ninety two, Republicans forty six. Yep. Um, and that is exactly two to one with seven progressives and five independents. So. Uh, there is certainly no uh, thought that Republicans are nipping at the heels of Democrats. Sure. Um, in the Senate, there's a total 
a very big supermajority um, where you have essentially uh, more than two-thirds of the body is uh, Democratic. So in there, you know, there's very little trouble uh, for Democrats. Um, do you have a sense, Xander, if, in fact, Mitzi Johnson is unsuccessful in her recount, uh, so she is no longer the Speaker, who might be next in line to be Speaker of the House in Vermont? Yeah, I think the obvious sort of person to look to, and I, I've, I haven't spoken to her quite yet, it, uh, but I, I, I'd assume that she's thinking about it, is the majority leader in the House, Jill Krowinski, uh from Burlington, who has obviously been working very closely with uh, Speaker Johnson over the last four years. I think another likely uh, candidate would be Sarah Copeland Hansis from Bradford, who's the chair of the Government Operations Committee. She ran for Speaker uh, in uh, 2016 going into 2017 um, and lost to Mitzi Johnson. I, I, I'd imagine that she would probably be thinking about it again. I think those are probably the two most likely and high-profile uh, members in the House who would be considering this um, at this point. And uh, Anne Galloway, uh, so Phil Scott returns with this overwhelming electoral uh, majority, uh, I mean, electoral backing that he received at the polls. What can we expect to be the key priorities of a fourth Scott term? Well, he said that he's going to be focused on the economy, and I think there is going to be plenty of work to be done um, over the next two years with regard to the COVID downturn. So I think that he'll be laser-focused on um, really helping the state get through this difficult uh, period and, um, you know, working with the legislature to make that as um, positive for for Vermonters as possible. I mean, there are a lot of issues right now that still haven't been resolved, including uh, an unemployment system that is very ancient and that has uh, some fundamental problems. Um, And so they're going to have to continue to figure out, you know, how monies are going to be um, sent to Vermonters directly, especially if there's a new stimulus package um, and, you know, at this point, revenues have been okay. Um, there is uh, an expected downturn in 2021, and so there may be some difficult decisions that have to be made in terms of the budget at that time. And um, so I think that, that that will occupy uh, a lot of his um, time and energy uh, along with uh, the COVID um precautions that the state is going to have to continue to focus on, uh, including the rollout of of a vaccine. So um, it doesn't seem like this is going to be a period in which there are going to be a lot of new initiatives um, coming out of the governor's office or the legislature, frankly, um, except as it pertains to both the economy and COVID. Okay, well, we're going to leave it there. I want to thank both of you, Ann Galloway and Xander Landon, uh, for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Ann Galloway is the founder and editor of Vermont Digger, and Xander Landon is its political reporter. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all shows at vtdigger.org slash vermontconversation. You can tune in next Wednesday at 1 for another Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.